Welcome to Crashing the War Party, where me and my compatriot, Dan Larson, endeavor to bring you the news and views and guests who aren't represented in the mainstream, particularly when it comes to foreign policy and war. This week, we'll be talking to Doug Bandow of the Cato Institute about the ratcheting tensions between the U.S. and North and South Korea and the seeming resistance of the Biden administration to do anything different to avoid a military confrontation there. But first, we'd like to talk about the I and R words and how they may affect the strength of the West's war aims in Ukraine. I'm talking about inflation and recession. There are massive protests in Paris, Berlin, and Prague over the last weekend, mostly aimed at deteriorating economic conditions across Europe. Analysts are expecting these publics to get more restive as the winter wears on and Europeans will be forced to conserve heat while paying exorbitant prices for it, as well as for food and other necessities. They are already shortages at the gas pumps in France as oil refinery workers continue to strike. In quote, the coming winter could free, freeze and shatter European sentiment, the shared sense of belonging, mutual trust among European countries, and citizens' emotional attachment to the idea of Europe. This was said by Pavel Zerka of the European Council on Foreign Relations in an AP story this week. Meanwhile, in the U.S., in the U.S., polls are revealing that Americans are most worried about inflation and the economy, and they have reason to be. Recent figures show inflation is still at 8% and barely budging, and the Fed is considering new rate hikes, which will inflict further pain on the U.S. economy before it can get better. Food and rent is hitting is hitting Americans hardest, those increases rather. While Americans have been steadfast in their support of the Ukrainian people, it remains to be seen how long they will support the billions of dollars in weapons and aid packages to Ukraine when people are suffering here. So what do you think, Dan? How will the alliance fare during the winter months? Is it as strong as the Biden administration makes it out to be, or will the U.S. be forced to shoulder the burden once it is clear that Europeans won't have the extra money and resources to give? Well, I think at least in the short term, the, the level of support will probably stay the same, uh, regardless of what happens in the midterms, because as we talked about last week, the the leadership in both parties is, is on board with that. Uh, over the longer term, I think what we're going to see is uh, more uh, more hedging of support, more uh, more questioning of providing the support without any strings. And so, I, I think what we'll start to see is growing pressure to start pressing the Ukrainian government to envision some kind of deal that they might be willing to accept uh, as a condition for bringing the conflict to a close. Of course, that, that will hinge on whether the, the Russians are prepared to accept any concessions uh, or and, and to make concessions on their side. Uh, as of right now, it looks like the Russian government is not really interested in negotiating. They're not interested in compromising unless they get to keep everything that they've already taken, uh, which isn't really a compromise. Right? They're not they're not prepared yet to acknowledge that their that their recent losses are, are as significant as, as we seem to think they are. Um, in terms of the, the politics in Europe, I think there is there's going to be growing support for uh, criticism of current policy of, of simply shipping weapons 
as many as possible for as long as possible with no clear definition of what victory even is. Uh, you see in, in Ukrainian public opinion, there's strong support for continuing the war, even up to including uh, the, the reconquest of Crimea, which then creates a lot of dangerous scenarios where the Russians then may feel compelled to resort to nuclear use, as we talked about in a, in a previous episode. And so it's, I think that's it's the mismatch between what the Ukrainian public is seeking and what Western publics are prepared to tolerate is going to create a real clash between the, the sponsors of Ukraine and, and Ukraine uh, probably in the, in the next six to eight months. Um, the, the, the elections that we've seen already in Europe have shown uh, considerable support for more populist and far-right parties, and I imagine that's going to continue. Uh, in the case of the Italian election, I guess the, the head of the new coalition is at least formally or, or publicly pro-Ukraine and pro-NATO, uh, but that isn't always going to be the case in a lot of these countries. And so you have to wonder uh, how many of these countries will be uh, as firmly committed in a year's time as they have been. Uh, I think that the trend is certainly going away from that uh, towards a lot more skepticism of NATO and, and more skepticism of uh, supplying the war effort, uh, no questions asked. Yeah, and I agree with you about the disconnect because I have raised this question with people this week saying, hey, is is the alliance, that the strength of the alliance, is it brittle? Um, are, is there a, is it a coming of, apart on the horizon given the economic conditions? And I've been met with, oh, no. You look at things that Macron is saying, uh, for example, even faced with these protests in, in his cities, he's saying we need to give the Ukrainians more weapons. We have to be steadfast. The um, the EU has just promised to train 15,000 more troops in Poland and Germany and give more weapons. Not, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what the United States has given. I think they've pledged like $485 million uh, compared to our billions of dollars. Um, but still, there seems to be a solid commitment from the European leadership to keep going, even if the people in these countries are starting to waver in their support because they're starting to look inward. Um, it's too bad you mentioned uh, some of the more authoritarian or center-right governments who might start kicking up a fuss about continued support for Ukraine, continued you know monetary support for Ukraine. It's, it's too bad that I feel like the messaging that the other side will, uh, you know, pursue will be, oh, yeah, it's just authoritarians who want to pull back on support because they love Putin. And this is all about, you know, the autocracies bonding together. Uh, I really would like to see a healthy debate on how how indefinite this support should be and whether or not it is in America's interest to fund a protracted war of attrition. And, you know, it's not just about American in interests, though. Obviously, I feel that that is an important component to resisting the Biden policies outright. But it's also in the best interest of the Ukrainian people to seek an end to this violence. I know, and a recent uh, Gallup poll this week 
have shown that there is still over 50% support in Western Ukraine for continuing to fight Russia um, and not seek a you know pathway to a negotiated settlement. But those numbers dip when you get further east and into the territories where the actual fighting is occurring. And I believe, and I don't have the poll in front of me, but it dips down to like 26%. And so I feel like this is an issue about um, Ukrainian interests and not seeing that country destroyed by an indefinite protracted war of attrition. And I feel like that's where the debate should be. It not should it should not be whether or not you're pro-authoritarian or pro-Putin um, or you don't care about Ukrainians. Well, and going back to the, the politics in Europe uh, question again quickly, the well, whether the, the leaders of these parties are authoritarian or semi-authoritarian or, or whatever you want to call them, uh, the reason that they're having success, the reason that their message is resonating with as many voters as it has is that they're, they are offering at least some kind of alternative to what has been presented to them to the voters before. And if, if voters are responding to it, uh, that may end up strengthening uh, authoritarian currents in these countries. Uh, but then that that shows how the, the other parties have really failed uh, to address the interests of these voters that have, have turned to those other leaders. And so what, what you could end up having is the the subversion or the the weakening of democracy in poor allied countries uh, as part of the price of, of continuing this uh, support for this conflict. And I think when we look at the the economic damage that has been done uh, and, and increasingly the political damage that's being done, we, we have to ask: is is the alliance actually better off for having done this? Uh, and and the longer this goes on, the, the costs are going to mount and it's going to become uh, increasingly a losing proposition uh, for the U.S. and its allies to, to keep this going. And so that's that's something that has to be kept in mind. This is uh, the, the priority for the U.S. and its allies has to be the security of the alliance and the security and well-being of Europe uh, within those countries. And so that's... That that what that's what needs to be our focus going forward. Yeah, and in terms of uh, the energy crisis specifically, I read a story today. I can't remember if it was in New York Times, but you know, Europe is really uh, rethinking how indebted or how dependent, rather, they have become on on Russian gas. And obviously, this has thrown all of that in, into stark relief. So where do they go from here? Do they become more dependent on the United States um, and um, other countries? Um, it, it's putting them in a real desperate situation. And as usual, the United States, our economy is, is, is not doing so well. But when you compare what is going on in, in Europe, we're doing okay. And the dollar is very strong. And so I feel like our leaders will continue to push this damn thing as far as it can go because we're not feeling the real visceral brunt 
of what's going on there. It, and it's so typical American, <laughs> you know, even, you know, we we're constantly pushing for war because in World War II and World War One, not since the Civil War, have we had the sort of um, destruction in terms of uh, body counts and um, infrastructure, uh, territorial um, pain and suffering that Europeans have had. And now they're taking the brunt for yet another um, U.S.-led action. I realize that Russia started this, um, but if we've, as we've talked about on this show many times, that we've played a role in the dynamics that have led to the current, current situation. And now we are committed to an indif- indefinite situation, and, um, but we won't be, we're not on the front lines. And, and that has often been the case uh, in American attitudes regarding uh, European security issues. We Americans have tended to be more aggressive than our European counterparts because, in a sense, we have the luxury of being more aggressive. As you say, we, we're not the ones bearing most of the direct costs. We're To the extent that we're paying any price for it, uh, it's through knock-on effects um, because of what's happening to them. And so it's... Uh, it's it's often the case that we don't we don't appreciate how how high the costs are for these policies, uh, and even if you you believe the policies to be justified, you you have to take the costs into account, and you have to be prepared to to, to manage those costs and, and to try to, to mitigate them as much as possible, and and that's where I think we're we're not seeing much leadership uh, from U.S. or European governments, where there, there's an understanding that the, the costs of this are going to be very high, but then where is the the appropriate support coming in uh, to offset those costs? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying We'd like to introduce Doug Bandow to the show today. Doug is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute specializing in foreign policy and civil liberties. He writes regularly for the American Conservative, the National Interest, Responsible Statecraft, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Times, and is a regular commentator on TV news. Welcome to the show, Doug. Well, it's great to be on. Enjoying the opportunity. Well, I'd like to start out with the latest. The State Department has called North Korea's claim that its missile tests over the last few weeks were provoked by the U.S. baloney, though it is really hard to see where this all began. The North has been rattling sabers, and the U.S., South Korea, and Japan have responded with its own missile tests and joint military exercises in the direct region. Doug, can you break down for us what exactly is happening and where we might see this going? Well, it strikes me as the most important issue here is the North doesn't want to talk to South Korea or the U.S. They've rejected that. And that's a change in policy. Historically, a new president would come into office and ignore them. Then they would shoot off missiles to try to get Washington's attention. This time, the new administration comes in, said it wanted to talk to them, and the North basically said, up yours, and went off and shot off missiles. So this looks to me like we really have to go back to the Hanoi summit, because it was a Hanoi summit where Kim Jong-un put forth a proposal that one could argue was inadequate, but did suggest a way forward, which is negotiating uh, 
you know, some partial sanctions relief for some partial denuclearization or at least restrictions on their nuclear program, which could have moved forward. The U.S. said no, and Kim Jong-un was really quite, I think, embarrassed by that and appeared to go away from that to decide he's done talking with Washington and Seoul. And for the most, there are occasional conversations, but nothing substantial after that. And this looks to me like he's decided he needs to build up his nuclear forces and missiles and particularly get long-range missiles that can hit America. And then my expectation is he'll come back and say, remember me? Now I have 150 nuclear weapons, so why don't we sit down now? And by the way, I'm not giving them all up. You know, so that's my guess of what's going on. So, you know, was he provoked? I don't think that what the U.S. and South Korea are doing right now have a lot to do with uh, the North Korean missile tests. They have a plan themselves, which makes an awful lot of sense from their standpoint. You know, and I suspect they're going to continue that for a while. They're going to continue the exercises. Or continue, you know, the, the testing, testing. You know, new missiles, both short and long range. And we everyone's waiting for a nuclear test. I suspect they don't want to do that while the Chinese uh, you know, are having you know, meetings. I mean, they're concerned probably still about a Chinese reaction. But everyone expects at some point we'll see a nuclear test and they're going to try to miniaturize weapons. I'm going to ask you a provocative question. Were we in a better position when Trump was president, who was actually reaching out and willing to talk and actually staged <clears throat> to talk with Kim Jong-un? Well, I would say we were better off between what was it, February 2018 with the Singapore summit and the Hanoi summit in 2019, that at that point, it certainly appeared that Kim was open to negotiation and saw a possibility here, I don't think of denuclearization, but of restraining his program and making a deal. And to my mind, pursuing that path gave us an opportunity we had not had before and we don't have today. And that was something Trump deserved credit for. I mean, most of the, the blob in Washington was, of course, horrified <laughs> to have President Trump run over there and talk to those people. But it really was the first time we had a president prepared to do so. And you know, at least in the interim, I think the results were pretty good. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, as as I'm, I'm watching all these headlines day in, day out, you know, are we so distracted right now, you know, reasonably so, with what is going on in Ukraine and Russia and to a certain extent, Taiwan and China, that we are blind to some real dangers emanating from this situation with North and South Korea? Um, or is there a general sense that perhaps Kim Jong-un is bluffing with all of these missile tests and just looking for at attention? I know there's there's probably a lot of gray area between those two points, but um, are we missing something here? Should we be paying more attention to Kim Jong-un right now? I think there's a mix that uh, the administration certainly is distracted. I mean, number one, most people wouldn't rate it that highly on competence. I mean, you know, look how it's blundered in dealing with Iran, you know, saying that they want to get back into the JCPOA. And I mean, utterly disastrous, seeming to pick up the Trump policy and carrying it forward with predictable results. And now we're in a situation where almost everybody says it's impossible to move back, given what's going on you know, in Iran. You know, these are not folks that, you know, you look at how they handled Russia in terms of potential negotiations before the invasion. I mean, you know, Russia made the decision to invade. It bears the blame. Nevertheless, it certainly looks to me like this administration didn't pay serious attention to what were clearly seriously articulated concerns. And guess, you know, look where we're at. 
So I think that's part of it is that it's hard for them to juggle this many things at once. I mean, they, you know, kind of walked into Taiwan with the, the Pelosi trip and, you know, you know, coming out of that with, uh, you know, greater tensions there for no benefit of America. Uh, but I also think to some degree there's an element, I mean, go back to the Obama administration. You know, it was kind of, you know, let, let's basically not pay attention to North Korea. It's not worth it. We make a deal, they'll break it. We're not going to get anything out of it. You know, it's kind of worthless, not not useful for us. So we'll just do other stuff. And there's, I think there's an element of that in the Biden administration, that feeling that there's not a lot we can do, especially with Kim turning down, you know, the any discussions. And the problem, I think, is this administration is locked into the denuclearization mode, which is most of the block. Oh, it's interesting. You talk to most Korean analysts here in town. Very few of them actually believe the North Koreans will ever give up their nukes. I mean, it's just very, I mean, they're all very serious. I mean, you know, these are very serious people. And some who visited North Korea, you know, they've been ambassadors to South Korea. They've been at state or NSC or something. And they all will privately admit, yeah, I mean, it's kind of hopeless. Yeah, of course, the North's not going to give it up. But none of them want to admit that. And for various reasons, well, we, you know, the, the people believe in nonproliferation and, uh, oh, my goodness, that's giving him what he wants. I mean, there's a whole lit litany of reasons. The problem is then you're locked into you tell the North Koreans we want everything. Well, they're not going to give you everything. And at this point, they've made it pretty clear they won't talk if that's all you want, which then pushes the North to do what it's doing today, which is, at least in my view, build up a really big arsenal and then come back and say, OK, you know, you guys can make a decision. You talk to us or you know, we keep going. And I think this administration is locked into that, that they can't make an initiative to the North that would essentially say, look, we're prepared to pick up where Trump and, and you stopped. You know, we believe that there are real opportunities here for us to have a better relationship and throw in things like get rid of the travel ban, you know, suggest opening li at least liaison offices. We need to talk regularly. You know, the, the time for permanent confrontation is over. This doesn't gain either of us. So I think there's an opportunity and to basically tell the North, you know, we understand you don't want to give everything up. You know, we have some rhetorical issues. We, we might have to keep saying certain things, but we understand. Right. Uh, but this administration doesn't seem to have any creativity, you know, any sense that maybe it needs to do something different. And I think that that, that sticks us where we're at. And unfortunately, I think that's right. Hi, Doug. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, I, I've been following this for uh, last several years, and it's been interesting to see among arms control experts and, and regional experts, as you were saying, there, there's a, a clear understanding that North Korean disarmament is not in the cards. It's not going to happen. Uh, but that has not really translated into more political support for moving away from the goal of denuclearization. Uh, it, it, feel, it seems like everyone in both parties uh, has to, to say that they support seeking denuclearization regardless of realities. Uh, at what point do you think most policymakers will finally acknowledge that the efforts to disarm North Korea can't succeed and they begin to make that shift towards a more limited arms control approach? No, I'm afraid the, that moment is when the North comes back with 150 nuclear weapons and the ability to strike American cities. That there's some point the reality becomes so obvious that uh, you can either run screaming from the room or you can sit down and decide maybe I have to act like an adult and come up with something. I mean, and I, to my mind, this is the real issue. It's going to affect extended deterrence. It'll have an impact on the alliance. The North clearly wants to have the ability to target American cities. I mean, now maybe they could shoot off one of the missiles of Wasong or something and hit North America. 
but they want to be an ability to you know, put in Chicago as a target and actually hit it. I mean, when they have that ability, the U.S. suddenly has to re, you know, kind of rethink its entire relationship with the Korean Peninsula. You know, Osan Institute and Rand predicted, that, I think it was by 2027, that the North could have 200 nuclear weapons. I mean, you know, that's a phenomenal number. I mean, that puts them up there with India and Pakistan ahead of Israel. I mean, they, they are suddenly a second. They're, they're not you know, a tiny little thing. They're a second tier nuclear power. I think that's where it's at that point, Washington has to take note. My worry is it'd be a lot easier to deal with them before they get there. But I just don't see any movement. I mean, there are a few people out there, Misha Oslin at Stanford and others, who've talked about some of these issues, Van Jackson, you know, who's off in New Zealand, that, uh, you know, the problem of the North acquiring a lot of weapons, issues of extended deterrence, et cetera. But for the most part, everybody just kind of blithely proceeds as if nothing's really going to happen here and we can pick up on this, you know, in a couple of years and there'll be no different. And, and as that goes on, there, there's increasing uh, talk in about developing their own nuclear weapons uh, and, and the UN government seems to be taking that idea at least somewhat seriously uh do you think they will actually pursue developing their own nuclear arsenal in south korea and what would what should the u.s response be if they do well it's very interesting this is one country where the majority of the population for the last decade or more has favored having their own nuclear weapons so there's popular support there's been some political support there was a novel published a few years back you know there were a number of people talking about how the South might like the idea of absorption of the North because, well, maybe they get the nuclear weapons too. So that sentiment is out there. You know, no government has yet embraced that. But it's, you know, the government's position, I, I recently talked to one of the embassy people, you know, kind of completely unrelated to, you know, any, we just meet regularly and kind of chat about what's going on. But it seems pretty clear the UN government is looking at things of like co-sharing nuclear weapons, having them, you know, um, you know kind of stored there you know, wanting to try to have uh, a firmer American deterrent, that they worry about nukes. I mean, they really are worrying about nukes. They, they're hesitant to take that step further on to us having them, that is, us meaning the South Koreans. But, you know, I told them it, it, it's, it's a problem to expect. To have America station them there, you know, requires the U.S. to actually commit in many ways to using them. It's not clear to me the U.S. wants to make that you know, commitment, so this might very well be a long shot. So they are thinking about this. It's I think that for the North, they will have to, or the South will have to decide that the extended deterrence, that is American willingness to protect them from a North Korean nuclear attack, is defunct, or at least heading that way before they decide to pick up uh, and move ahead on nuclear weapons. But I think there's very real sentiment for that. They're very nervous about the North. They see the North continuing to build nuclear weapons. You know, they watched Ukraine and they realized the U.S. wasn't interested in racing in with troops. They understand that the Biden's talking about deterrence of nuclear weapons. They see all that. And I think this is an issue. And if it hits South Korea, of course, then we're going to see discussions in Taiwan, discussions in uh, you know Japan, probably Australia. So it could get quite interesting. And speaking about uh, U.S. alliances more broadly, uh you wrote recently about uh, some of the problems that the U.S. has with its uh, both its formal allies and its and its uh, quote unquote allies, its clients. Uh, and ideally, alliances should make the U.S. more secure rather than less. Uh, which of our current relationships, current alliances, are failing to deliver uh, on that count? 
Well, it's hard to see which of them really do make us more secure. I mean, I do think that one could argue that if Japan armed itself much more, that a partnership with Japan is pretty useful in Asia, where you know suddenly the Japanese are worrying about the Sakaki Islands and they aren't wailing to us about them. Um, yeah, but you look at the Middle East. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the royal dictatorships. It's hard to see why at this stage we have to you know provide bodyguards for them, and the Europeans. I, mean, I think that Ukraine has shown the way forward. That is, let the let the let the uh, Europeans arm themselves, and no one can imagine that Russia is going to suddenly roll to the Atlantic. I mean, that's simply, I didn't, you know, that wasn't going to happen before. It certainly wouldn't happen again. So I think the, uh, it makes sense for a thoroughgoing rethinking of the alliance relationships. To my mind, what you want is cooperative relationships, where if mutual interests are at stake, you can work together. And that might include interoperability, you know, kind of interoperability of military weapons, of having emergency basing rights. You know, there are a lot of things you could do, but it's hard to see why the U.S. has to, you know, have defense commitments to countries that are well armed and able to defend themselves. And then we have to make decisions on the tough ones. I mean, like Taiwan, which I think could do an awful lot by itself. I mean, it's not easy to go across a hundred miles of rough water. A lot of anti-ship missiles in Taiwanese hands would have to make the Chinese think very hard about that. It's still, it's always going to be tough for the Taiwanese given the Colossus next door. You know, I don't want to get into nuclear war with China over Taiwan, but it strikes me that's one where you have to think about less, you know, does it make us more safe and, and is the cost worth it, but take it seriously as opposed to just assume we say something, you know, and the Chinese will, you know, kind of skitter back into Beijing and not do anything. And I think that's an illusion. And Xi Jinping has made that very clear. I mean, in the, for his opening the statement in the work product, I mean, it's a 64-page work report, but Taiwan is high up there where he makes very clear this is a very important desire of the Communist Party, and by God, we're going to make that happen. And he explicitly said, we're not going to you know, kind of promise not to use force. That, uh, you know, that shows how dangerous it is. So what happens if they do take Taiwan by force? What should the United States do in response? Well, it strikes me the first thing to do now is arming Taiwan. Is and it's number Taiwan needs to know it needs to spend money. Its people need to serve in the military, and that that's a big problem. They don't spend a lot on the military. The last time I looked, it was on two percent of GDP. That doesn't make any sense if you're sitting next to China and you're worried about a forcible, you know, attempt to you know, overrun you. Uh, people don't want to serve in the military. Well. I understand that, but the Americans shouldn't die for Taiwan if Taiwanese don't want to die for Taiwan. That should be made very clear to them. We, we, we don't jump into things if the locals aren't interested in doing the job. And they want to buy things like F-35s that are kind of high prestige, but would be knocked out of the air almost immediately. What they need is anti-access area denial weapons. You know, and they need to make the, the main deterrent to China, I think, is not necessarily the U.S. getting in, which they kind of expect, but hope they could do whatever they had to do before we arrived. But rather, it's Taiwan that you know they 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 are afraid of losing. I mean, a Xi Jinping who tried to take Taiwan and failed, it had you know a, a couple dozen ships sunk in the Taiwan Strait and troops going to the bottom of the ocean would probably lose his job. Uh, so that I think is where we should be. And then the other thing to do is to work with Europeans and Asian friends ahead of time and say, look, we need a warning to go to China that if it decided to try to take Taiwan, there would be economic sanctions across the board from industrialized countries, and it would have a major impact on China. It's a big trading nation. Guess what? You all would pay a very heavy price 
and actually a heavier price than Russia has because China is so integrated into the world, and try to get a commitment and know ahead of time what the Europeans are willing to do. You don't want to walk into this, we make great promises, and then nobody backs us. Work this out ahead of time, see what commitments people are willing to make, again, to try to deter China from acting. Um, you know, we got a couple minutes left, but I have to ask uh, regarding Russia, Ukraine and NATO, you have written extensively about how the United States should start to promote, you know, more strategic autonomy uh, for its European partners. You've questioned um, the, the sort of mission, the modern mission of NATO and whether that should be uh, rethought, so to speak. Now, after the February invasion of Russia, there seems to be a whole new spirit uh, animating NATO and the alliance in in Europe. Do you still feel there is room uh, to push for more strategic autonomy on the part of our NATO partners or have events sort of colluded against that, whether it be the war in Ukraine, but also the ensuing economic crisis that is hobbling or will be hobbling our European partners in terms of the resources that they'll be able to commit to their own defense in the in the near future. Well, I think events in many ways have colluded against kind of getting what we should have, which is an autonomous Europe that defends itself, uh, though it shouldn't. That is, I mean, uh, Americans, you know, again, the blob, members of the blob are incredibly enthused about defending Europe. And I, I suspect many of them would love to bring Ukraine into NATO. They don't understand right. why we don't. Uh, you know, so, but they've never really been enthusiasts for autonomy anyway. I mean, for years, the U.S. always told the Europeans, you should spend more, but let us run the alliance. And that's not a very persuasive argument. You know, we want you to dump a lot more cash in and we get to direct kind of how you use your military. So there's always been resistance in Washington to autonomy. To my mind, the, what the U.S. perspective here should be, we hold the Europeans to their promises, which is we expect to see Europeans doing a lot more. And along with that, instead of sending more troops in, we should be pulling them out. You know, and I think, if, for example, the Biden administration should announce that, you know, given the fact it's clear Russia is not going to be invading the rest of Europe. I mean, that's obvious. We, we can pull out the 20,000 extra troops that Biden put in. And if the Europeans are worried about this, well, this is a good time to raise more troops. And yeah, I'm sorry that you're suffering economically, but guess what? So is America. And we're bankrupt. I mean, we have 100% of GDP, our debt is 100% of GDP. That is debt owned by the public. I mean, this is outrageous. You know, the CBO says it could go to, you know, 185% by 2050. I mean, you know, Greece went, uh, you know, kind of a you know, financial crisis at about 140 percent of GDP. So we don't have the money. I mean, the idea that we are rich somehow and can do this is simply nonsense. We're borrowing, you know, and future generations are going to pay for it. So I think we still have to make the case. And my hope is we're seeing some resistance build in the Republican Party. I think some of the polling indicates Americans are happy we did what we did, but think the Europeans should do more. Look at the numbers. We're doing far more than Europe. Excuse me. Who's most at risk? So the argument still has to be made, but it's it's a tougher sell in Washington these days. Yeah, I think it'd be a really tough sell to to try to, to extricate 20,000 troops out of, of Eastern Europe right now. Um, the emotional argument is yeah. not with our side for sure. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today, Doug. Um, again, your work appears in National Interest, the American Conservative, regularly in Responsible Statecraft, Antiwar.com, and on 
the Cato Institute website. So I encourage listeners to uh, Google Doug Bandow. He's written fantastic stuff out there and regularly. So thanks, Doug, for everything. Well, appreciate we'll it. To talk with you again. Yeah, great to be on with you too. Had a good time. Take care now. Thanks. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.